Before we start this episode, I'd like to thank MSI for helping make this podcast possible. Also, we've recently converted our events and workshops to online. So, doesn't matter where you are in the world, we invite you to come along and join in our community events and workshops. Alright, let's get into it. My name's Matthew Packwood, and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation, and visual effects artists. Today, I'll be chatting with Travis Hogg, a founder and co-owner of Airbag. Travis started his career in the UK as a professional stills photographer before moving into cinematography and visual effects production, and then specialising in directing for television commercials. For over 15 years, Travis has been leading Airbag, working with clients including Honda, Ford, Carlton Draft, RACV, McDonald's, Ryobi, and Cadbury Chocolates. In this episode, we'll be chatting about winning work from advertising agencies, doing treatments, and advice for directing TVCs, and much, much more. All right, Travis, let's get into it. Thanks very much, Travis, for coming in today in these unusual times and sharing your knowledge with us. Not a problem. Thanks for inviting me. Don't breathe on me, please. Thanks. (laughs) Okay, I won't. No, no, seriously, I won't. Don't. (laughs) Okay. I'm undecided if I should put anything about I We should. I think there's a bit of a time capsule. It's an interesting moment. So I I was thinking that we could say something along the lines of, you know, do you want to learn to be a director or do you want to learn to siphon fuel from a Ford in a sort of Mad Max <laughs> epidemic kind of vibe. Yeah, after we finish this, I'll show you my gun collection. Good, good. I'll, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll take one. <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. Alrighty, here we go. What are the important things that you need to know to become a commercial TVCs director? There's a whole lot of fields within directing, film, TV, and then TVCs, and short films and all the rest, and any form of media that needs a director. Technically, there's obviously a huge part of needing to know your craft as a director. Yep. A commercial TVC is a little bit different. You're working within a 30-second medium. There's a lot of people with a lot of fingers in the pie. (laughs) Knowing how to liaise and manoeuvre to get your creative ideas on the screen is something that you should learn. Sort of being a good client manager, is that what you're saying? Definitely client managers is a huge part of it. Having a good personality, a good confidence, Yep. giving off that confidence lets everyone relax. The guys who know their stuff and are doing really, really well always give that vibe of, I know exactly what I'm doing here and I'm doing it for a vision. And to get that feeling across, everyone calms down. And as soon as everyone's calm, you get a great ad. Before you move into TVCs, what are the key things that you would tell someone to become good at? That question's got so much scope. You've got to know lenses, you've got to know editing, you've got to know lighting, you've got to know storytelling, you've got to know emotional beats. Just knowing how to get a story across punchy, Yep. you have to be quick, you know, 30 seconds generally. And 
so the idea has to be short, sweet. There's no not much time for for faff. Okay. On the premise that you know all that and are good at it, uh, self promotion to actually get the job is really important. You have to be out there. You have to be really sort of in the industry, bouncing around to all the parties, so to speak. What are the benefits of being a director of TVCs who's represented? Generally, advertising agencies will go to a production company, especially on the bigger ads, when there's $300,000 on the line. There's an air of safety with a production company. They have the massive team that sits behind the director. And you may have a, a great director who's this kind of the cool thing at the moment, but a good line producer, producer just a, an office space that, that works, all the team that's going to be following that director has to be solid. And that's what sits in a production company as well. Okay. If you're a director and you want to find a good production company, that's actually something I'd work out. How is that back end? A production company isn't solely, hey, we go out and sell you to try and get work in for you. It's we then run the entire job. And that's a huge part of it. So basically what you're trying to say, the benefits of being represented are is that you get a big back end that can give you credibility, help you get bigger jobs and that sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. Because you look at it from an agency's point of view, they may like your reel, but who are you going to use as a producer? Are you going to be able to get locations and casting and all the all the stuff that needs to be done? Yeah. In the back of their mind, they're like, I love his reel, but... Are we going to end up with a product at the end? Are we going to have $300,000 out of our pocket and an ad that then goes to air? Is that going to happen? And there has to be a bit of safety in that. And it's a scary thing for an agency to to trust anyone. We've actually had people come to us and go, hey, we really like this director. He's not represented, but we would like you to be the back end for that director solely because they like his portfolio or her portfolio, but they still need that safety. Is there a lot of people trying to get represented by Airbag? Yeah, we, we get a, a lot of emails. We actually grew our roster pretty recently because we've opened up in Sydney and that's going really well. So we're able to have a new market. Cool. One of the things that a good production company does is they don't cross over fields as much because if you've got a director who's exactly the same as your other directors, you can't get enough work for them. Yeah. And that's the thing, you, you're not trying to just take them on. You have to find work for them. They need to know that you are getting them work and, and it's a hard thing to do. And in Sydney, you can have a, another, say you had a car guy. We would only have two car guys based on the fact that there's two separate cities. If you're looking for someone to work as a, a director, what are you looking for? One, a market for them. If we keep getting scripts that come in and none of our directors fit that shape, it's nice to know that, okay, well, we need more food photography. Okay, let's let's think about if someone comes across our line with food photography on their reel, let's have that open, a car or fashion or there's people find niches of what they're really good at and what they want to do. So if we get markets for that, that's one way. Okay. The other way, which I think is actually more important, is if you're doing something really cool, a production company will try and grab you. So if you're a director... And you're expecting a production company to just get you the work. You rock up, you get the work, and and then you buy a yacht. It's, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. A production company will want to find people who are doing their own thing and running in their own way. And then if we can take you to the next level, absolutely great. But 
you want to run it yourself. You want to kind of do short films, do the music videos, be doing your own thing because those are the guys who are just going to keep working and, and that's what we're interested in. It's also high-end work as well, like high quality. So if they do food, they do food really, really well and in high quality. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Food photography is a bit of a, a strange one. Those guys generally come about by working in the industry a bit, getting a few jobs and then specialising. Being straight out of uni or being a, an up-and-comer, the reel is really hard yep. to impress because there's generally no budget. You know, you're doing everything. It's it's a hard sell. You know, we've all been there. Our portfolio sucked. You know, it was embarrassing <laughs> looking back. That's what I always tell students and people who are trying to break into the industry is that everyone had to break into the industry. Yeah, we were doing music videos for, for years and learnt so much. You can screw up heaps in music videos and no one really knows because it's just cool, fun, creative stuff. You can try the most weird techniques and it's just a great learning space. It's, it's actually something you have to produce for a content. There has to be something at the end of it, which is great and professional. Okay. But, you know, you get a lot of room to play. I remember that Paul Kelly video that you did. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, 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 yeah. That was, that was a while ago. And he was in a tank or yep. something. And it was weird. That was a weird one. So I'm going to steer us back. How do the payment structures work? Are you full-time? Are you on a retainer? Or do you get paid per job? And what happens when you want to actually join and they say, oh, we want to bring you on as a represented director? All production companies are per job. Generally, a brief comes in and you'll pitch on that. If you're the chosen director at the production company, you'll do a treatment. And then if you win that job, you get payment. And depending on your level of experience, you get a day rate. You're hoping for a two-day, you're hoping for a three-day shoot yeah. because you're paid only on the days that you shoot. Those are very well-paid days. And that represents the time of pre-production and post-production as well. Yep. You technically get paid for the day, but it's really for the job. That's interesting because there's heaps of pre-production, I would imagine. Absolutely, and, and post. And you're, you're the sort of director who works in post as well. Yep. So for a middle-of-the-road director, how much do you reckon the average day rate would be? It's $10,000, $15,000 it can be, and then the top guys can be more. Yep. The thing is, if you work three days, that's a good pay packet. Yeah. If you're lining up back-to-back, -back, directing can be really good money, yep. and it can also be shit. <laughs> um, just because if you're not getting the jobs, it's a, it's a hard gig. Okay. I've described this process to people of how I live my life, which is I go for a job, I spend three days preparing for this interview, the treatment. I then am one in three. And if I get the job, I work for one month and then I get fired. And that's the end of it. And then I just started again and I started again. And for the last 15 years... I've just, in essence, been going for job interviews and fired after after a month. And it's not fired, it's the end of the job, but you've got to be on the ball and you've got to be eager to run for it. You've got to love it. It's the same as having your own studio, except occasionally you'll get a client that will say, oh, we'll keep you for the year. Yeah. But that's still pretty rare. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and I suppose anyone in the creative field has this sitting over your shoulder. I've never heard it explained <laughs> that way, but it's, that is basically what it is. It's daunting. <laughs> So, say I become at Exit or one of the other production mm. companies as a director, yep. am I allowed to go and do other projects like do my own short film or go and work directly with a food company or something? It depends. 
anything commercial, you do sort of expect that if you're out there having people out knocking on doors, spending money to promote them, it'd be a cheeky one to then go to another production company, that's for sure. Yeah. Individual projects, anything creative, go nuts for it. There's jobs that we have with our directors that it's their own creative project and then we supply production company back-end stuff for them. All the edit suites and grading and all that sort of stuff is all... Yep. All the software and hardware are there. Go nuts, use it all. Be as creative as you can because not that there's burnout with, with uh, commercials, but yep. commercials are very technical. There's moments of creativity, but there's a lot of moments of we need to liaise with a lot of people. So if you have another outlet of creativity, all the better, all the better. So if you're a director and you're doing other sort of directing work like television or whatever and or yeah. you're making corporate videos and you suddenly want to switch and start doing TVCs, yeah. how would you put a reel together for that? You actually want to know if you want to break in like because your portfolio is key. Yep. You know, no one's going to say, well, I, I feel like this guy's got some good work in him and I'm going to risk all my money on this guy. Yep. It's a lot of risk taking on a new person. There has to be a bit of air of trust. So... How we did it, and I'm saying this not as to get the job for to get into production companies, but to promote our production company for agencies. Okay. When it was small and we were starting out, it was just me and Nick Wright, and we had to impress agencies, just like directors have to impress production companies. What we did was we did a lot of test ads. We just spent our own time and creativity producing mock ads. Yep. And if they believed that it was a real ad... And great, you know, we didn't tell them otherwise. And, and, and it was enough for the trust for that to build. So you did passion projects that were sort of samples of what the television commercials would look like. So they can say, well, look, he's done something to the television commercial as well as these other stuff. Yep. In the early years, we did one for a Mercedes ad, which was a fully 3D ad. We'd already done a bit of content for cars at that stage. But there's rules of like, you can't go more than 60Ks an hour. And yeah. we went... We really want to see what we could do in 3D yep. with a car ad. And so we did an ad, but it was kind of like a short film of a robbery with a Lego. So it was a full Lego set, this Mercedes getting chased and or chasing down these robbers. So cool. it was great fun and it helped us get bigger work. Well, I remember when you did that and yeah, I didn't know it was a spec project or a passion project. I only realized that the other day when I was looking at your stuff. Generally was always slow we, we would have a month where we would just be dead and everyone would be on holidays and so january was let's go nuts let's make the ad we want to make because quite often you'll do content especially at the start that's not great creative and it may not be top shelf stuff so if you can get top shelf on your portfolio yeah you will get top shelf work you only get what you what you show I was trying to get good, high-quality TVCs when I had my studio and I was getting like retail TVCs and I couldn't really ever get them to prove that I could do high-end animation because I always only had retail TVCs. Yeah, yeah. And I never actually put that stuff in my folio because I was <laughs> embarrassed by it. Well, every director, 70 80% of their stuff, uh, you know, ain't going to be seen by the light of day. <laughs> That's for sure. It ain't going on their portfolio. <laughs> cool. What TV shows, magazines, books interest you when you were growing up? My love was photography. I definitely had a love of tinkering with photography. Okay. I look back and it's strange because I was doing in-camera visual effects even before I knew there was a phrase for it of multiple exposures and doing a mini studio in my room and, and a whole lot of sort of film photography things that were great fun and I didn't know there was a career in it. Somehow I've landed in a 
in the exact same position. I'm still playing with cameras and, and filming. And when was it when you discovered your interest in directing and film and imagery? I was living in the UK and I was a commercial photographer and Nick Wright, a friend of mine that I'd met over there, he was living up in Leeds and we ended up borrowing a camera and shooting a short film. And then we did it again and did it again and did it again. And after about the sort of fourth short film, we kind of went, ah, oh, this is great fun. Let's, let's do this. You'd finished uni and that before you actually discovered your passion for it. Oh, absolutely. I'd, I'd been in the UK for four or five years by that stage shooting photography. Cool. Once you became interested in directing, was there any directors who inspired you? We actually were really impressed by the exit crew. Yep. There was a bit of a vision of, hey, if we could do exit film stuff, but our own sort of style, which was a bit more filmic, but with some visual effects. If we got the mill and we got exit, mushed them together, that was our first vision. Yep. And we actually went to exit uh, and, and talked to Hendrix sort of saying, hey, can we borrow your producers? Because we didn't know how it all worked. And yep. uh, he just looked at us and goes, y- you realize we're competitors? Yeah. You know, what are you doing here? <laughs> and it was very, very awkward, but uh, it was good. I actually think that being a competitor in the industry, uh, people have to think beyond that. Yeah. There is a level of competition. Mm. However, there's areas where different people who are in the creative industry can actually help each other. Yeah. Uh, And I've found that uh, different studios helping each other from time to time is actually quite beneficial to everyone in the creative industry. Absolutely. I I actually find that it's kind of strange. We don't meet many other directors. You, You kind of isolated yourself off when you're working and you're a competitor when you're doing treatments. And yeah, I feel like we should, in the industry, have more of a, a pool of, hey, let's get all the directors and just go get drunk and hang out uh, and talk among each other because it's one of the most isolating industries out there. Well, with the uh, 3D community and with the, the 2D motion design community, I've mm. been doing that and the post-production yeah. events that you were at. And every time I do it, like I did a small group of... 3D cinema, 3D artists mm-hmm. sort of thing. They have a great time and they help each other yeah. and they learn, they teach each other stuff. Well, I find the um, freelance visual effects artists, especially the ones we use, they have more insight into other production companies and, and post houses than, than we do. They literally go out and go door to door, different productions, seeing different systems, different workflows. Yeah. We are in our own place learning from whatever we think is best, which yep. is kind of quite isolating, but it's, it's an interesting that they get to see more processes than we do. You get that a lot with the freelancers. There's a lot of downward pressure on budgets and a lot of pressure on workflows. If people can work together, they can maybe relieve those pressures and also let people enjoy their work more because they're getting to talk to other people who are having the same problem. You look at the directors who do have other director friends, but not as a industry coming together except for award nights and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Obviously, we have the same interests and the same same love for film, so we probably should all get together a bit more. Briefly describe your career path. When did you start directing and then specialise in visual effects directing? Did the course, went to the UK where I was there for six years. Uh, I was an assistant for like three or four years, learning from the top guys, uh, which is amazing. Yep. And then became the photographer. And that was stills photography? That was all stills photography. I hadn't done any filming, hadn't done anything like that. And then with a friend of mine who we started shooting short films for the love of it and did a lot of visual effects because Nick was visual effects based. That was his skills, that and editing. So I was doing the lighting, the shooting, 
and he was doing the visual effects and I learnt all my visual effects from Nick. So for someone who's never worked full time for somebody and you've worked for yourself for your whole career, yeah. if you could run down from like when you started Airbag to now, those iterations. Start with me and Nick doing music videos. Yep. So we did that for sort of two years, brought it from the UK to Melbourne. And then we survived another year doing music videos. Yep. And then realized that after only eating beans, that beans taste horrible and we needed more money. And we knocked on agencies' doors just going, well, this is what we do. Looking back, it was very naive. Yep. I don't know if I would have let me through the door with, with the portfolio we had. But we got enough jobs from there to keep us busy and learn more. And then eventually we had six full-time staff doing visual effects for just our ads. So me and Nick were directors. And then eventually Adrian Bosic and uh, Stephen Nicholson joined us. Okay. They had just left Exit Films and were both amazing directors. That was a turning point from what Airbag was, which was me and Nick never really knowing the industry to, okay, this is this is taking it to the next level. And what year was that in that the partnership started? 2010. Okay. That's when we actually went out to the big guys. And um, it's now, so th this is sort of what most people know was Airbag now. Yep. 16 directors on our roster. We're in Sydney and Melbourne. I feel, and I hope people feel, we're, we're one of the big boys now. Over the years, which projects do you think have been the most successful and satisfied you the most? There's twofold for that. One is there's awards and we've done Meet Graham, which was won everything under the sun. Um, we did all the tech and visual effects and um, experiential part for that. Cool. But then personally, uh, did Bank of Melbourne, which was a great fun piece, which was like a converting Melbourne into a monopoly yep. board. The original brief was, oh, just do tilt shift. And I then just said, don't worry about that. Let's go full on. Let's... Uh, make this technically macro photography by projecting the whole of Melbourne onto low poly geometry and then doing scaled up camera moves and all these sort of things that that sort of took what I thought was a nice idea to somewhere I really am proud of. So that was one of my nice ones. Cool. I think each project's got a bit of a, you know, something in it. You've got to have something in it that you go, yeah, that, that worked. But if you had two, you, you would say they were those two. I would say those two, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. <laughs> All right, I'm going to change directions a little bit. So where did you come up with the name Airbag and what does it mean? Airbag's name came about because we didn't want to say we do music videos. We wanted to have a, an organic growth of, of what this business was going to be. And every two or three years, we've evolved a different body of, of what Airbag does just because it has to be growing. And a new production company is definitely uh, changing. And if you don't change, you're just going to be left behind. But how do you know what to change to? Always something's evolving out of things that we love doing and, and, and are interested in. And it sort of builds from there. What's the hardest thing you've had to learn to progress your career? Airbag as a business, like any business, is a lot to learn. Yep. You shouldn't be looking at the business side as the creative side, you should separate the two. Um, there's a lot of people who do great creative work and then they just burn through the money. Yeah. And the way the market goes up and down, you have to have enough fat to be safe. And if you're burning through that money, that's a really hard one. Yep. But then you go the other way. And if you just are making money, you're not getting the beautiful content. So this is absolutely fine line between 
creative and money, and they both have to be there or the business just isn't going to be there. And did it take you a long time to learn this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, you know, we're still learning. You know, you still want to make sure that ways to have the best thing on the screen is, is key. And it's one of the reasons we have the visual effects in-house is because if we went to another round of changes, that would cost money. But yeah. Or even I, like, because I'm still on the tools for, for jobs. If I want something better and I'm willing to work a night for the, for the job, it's not money out the door. It's just me working later. Yep. The client's going to be happier. They're going to come back, but it's not going to burn the bank. So at Airbag, what's your role now? I'm still a director. Still do visual effects. We've got guys who do sales. I'm not great at sales. I'm <laughs> I don't mind talking and, 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 you know, talking the shit, but it's... um. It takes a certain level of skill to go door knocking and, and yeah. uh, I, I don't think that's me. And that's fine. We've got Adrian who is a god at it. He is <laughs> industry leader at going and chatting and knowing everyone and uh, he loves it. So you're a practicing director and you're also like doing the visual effects post side as well. Yep, absolutely. Now I want to talk about your career in more detail. What led to you and your partner starting up Airbag? It was kind of, it just happened. We didn't even know the whole process of production companies. It was just, we were making short films and thought, well, if we put a name to it, we're kind of there. <laughs> it's a name pretty much, you know, cements it in, in law and, and that was it. Yeah, well, I remember when I come to see you and you just started in that little room in yeah, Collingwood. With a big pole in the centre, which <laughs> took up more than anything else. Wasn't there painting going on, like artists? It was a, an artist studio, which was artists and sculptors and, and photographers and architects there. So we just hired a little room. It was just a creative suite called Redbox in Collingwood. Cool. What were the early challenges and what did you learn from them? One thing we did very well was we started with small agencies. Yep. If we were going to screw up, we didn't want to burn our bridges too badly. So we started small and I feel like every single year we've we've grown and that's been, so it hasn't gone too fast. It's been a slow growth and always gone up, which has been great. In that period, did you have any failures that you learned from? Uh, I would say some of the ads were pretty damn bad. <laughs> <laughs> I think some of the, the content was, was rough. Okay. On the business side, I would say staffing is a thing you learn from. I think we've overstaffed occasionally and been burnt badly from it. It's a fluctuating business. You, you will be on fire and, and have multiple ads running parallel and it you know you don't sleep and then you'll have two months of no work. So the feast and famine. Is, is true and something anyone starting a business should know about. We talked earlier about when the financial crisis happened, me letting go staff and how that was a major failure. Yeah, and I suppose if the work's there, you need to hire people. There's no question about it. And it works out financially better for them and for you if you can be on staff, but just it's hard going. Yeah, I learned a lot about that overcapitalizing in staff. Mm. That was probably my biggest learning is that you don't want to let people go because you have to and then that makes you feel bad and it makes mm. them feel bad and that there is actually benefits in having contracted staff. It's such a big safety net for any production company to base on a job as opposed to a, a thing. But we, we have a core team and you make that core team amazing and that sort of flows through anyone you're going to be hiring per job. It'll be interesting to see what happens after this really slow period that we're about to go yeah. into. I feel like we should mention the coronavirus. <laughs> yeah. We're mentioning it. I'm not, I don't want to say it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to say the After the coronavirus, there might be a change in the way that people operate. I'm not sure if it's going to be for the better. 
like yeah. or for the worst, but allowing for things to go wrong, which we haven't really done. In the yeah, past. but you know, there's a point of you can't imagine this level happening. It's never happened before. Yeah, for every single country to be in an economic crisis is, you know, it's pretty amazing and in a bad way. So we're going to move on to your mid career and creating partnerships. What were the benefits of bringing partners into your business and expanding in that way? It was crucial, really. We had reached a bit of a plateau of what sort of work we could do. We were flat out, but we weren't working with the big guys. We weren't working with the top agencies, uh, weren't getting much international work. It needed a new level of person, and that's where Adrian and Steve brought. They were from Exit. They knew their stuff. They had a great clientele. Yeah. And they were just very smart guys who want to grow a business. So... Yeah, it, it was sort of a no-brainer. There was just such a, a good team, and we've been really solid. Okay. So what were the challenges of when you got together in the beginning? It was definitely a model change. You know, straight away we got an EP, accounts in-house. It was all sort of about sales, and it just changed the model completely. Um, not, a, not in a bad way. It was, that was hard to follow, but it was, it was, it was great. You would have had to generate a lot more income then to cover the new partners. If you take someone on and they're bringing in more work, then it's financially viable. And the other thing was Steve and Adrian were directors, so it wasn't like they just sat there. They were bringing in work for the business. Cool. Have you had any failures in your career and what have you learned from them? Of course not. What are you talking about? Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, There's different scales of failures, like per job you may have you know, not nailed the things you wanted to do. And then there's, as owner of Airbag, there's business models that have gone wrong. I think the one that we I look back at that just didn't work was we tried to separate our visual effects hub, which at that stage was like six staff and a massive pipeline. And it was bigger than some of the actual post houses. And we thought this should be open to people. Yeah, it needed more of a, a sales team because it was an internal of, of airbag. Other production companies just aren't going to go to your competitor and go, hey, other production company, can you do our visual effects? They'll just go to a post house. Yep. So there was a kind of model that we thought was going to be really cool because it was a good asset that could have been used. Just wasn't going to work. So that was a Canopy project. So yep. it was canopy.com.au. We tried to separate all the stuff. We had Airbag Labs. We actually sort of saw all the tech and we relabeled it Airbag Labs. Yeah. Tell us more about the Airbag Labs and how that led into the technology work that you're doing now. Labs is Steve's brain. Steve Nicholson, crazy engineer, genius, amazing artist with a technical knowledge. The actual market sort of went into experiential. It was just the thing to do uh, about sort of four or five years ago. And we had already been doing it. So we kind of labeled it as Labs. So when did you realize that it wasn't working? Then how did you pull it back? The canopy side of thing, which was the, the most that we tried to separate the, the entities, it just didn't go anywhere. Okay. It, it just sort of petered away. And, and then we um, dropped canopy and dropped labs and just realized that putting it all under just airbag as an entity, it, it just meant we create content. Back to what you were talking about before, splitting off the post side. Yep there is benefits in that concept Mm. and it's maybe if you had located it in a different building absolutely then it might have been but the post houses visual effects places that model was falling down 
Yeah. Well, it, it's a hard gig and, and, you know, with budgets dropping and yep. timelines dropping and all the rest. Did you emotionally attach to those brands or did you, were you upset? Um, it... No. Okay. It, it was keeping busy, but it was all the internal stuff. So it really didn't burn us, you know, emotionally. Yeah. And Labs was kind of a way to tell people we did tech. But as soon as we'd won quite a few awards uh, in that field, it was just known that Airbag was doing some of the crazy stuff. All right. I'm going to change directions a little bit. Tell us about the offices and what you were looking for to, in the environments that you created. The first office we ever had was what, what was the cheapest possible thing we could buy. Okay. It was, I don't know, a few metres by a few metres and it had a massive pole right in the centre of it. Which, I don't remember the pole. It was oh, very, I remember the pole. <laughs> it was edgy and very artistic and it was near the 90s, so I actually thought. It, but it was just an artist commune kind of vibe that sort of more professional people could use. And then Clifton Hill? A great step up. Actually, we had one moment where we were doing an, a, an ad for Australian Open and we had the heads of McCann come over to our office and we had a tiny monitor sitting on top of a beer fridge. Yeah. We didn't have any seats. They just had to stand there and like look at this really bad monitor that we had at the time. And we sort of just looked at each other and we're like, okay, we've outgrown this place. We need to, we need to take it to the next level. And that's when uh, the Clifton Hill office, which was a great open plan, beautiful light. Yeah, definitely turned us from a living in a little dark rooms yeah. to nice open plan. I actually prefer that over the Richmond office because the environment around it is so nice. Yeah, good uh, suburb. And it was a nice office. Yeah, uh, and better parking. And better parking <laughs> and very close to my house. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Uh, so then the, it was a pretty good open plan set up. Uh, so what about the next one when you moved to? We just needed bigger space. We found a place in Cremorne and were able to get this big open warehouse that we gutted and refurbished. And you've got professional edit suites and grading places. And, and what do you think that the environment does for the other directors? Do you think that the way that you set it up affects the way that they work? Absolutely. You want a place that you want to go. Yeah. There's always people in the office. There's either technical people or producers or anything. So there's always a buzz. And I've always hated production companies that, you know, you only come in if you've got the job. It can be quite a, a quiet sort of lonely place if there's sort of no one sort of sitting there. So there's always a buzz, which has made it really kind of a more of a community. So once you become a director with you guys or you're working with you, you can have a desk and oh, hang it's, out. Yeah, yeah, it's it's what if you want to do, you know, some creative outlet stuff, the space is there for you. Could you describe it for us? One major open space with four individual rooms, one being the main client edit suite, which is for grading online, offline. Yep. The technical room, which has got all our hardware, 3D printers, electrical stuff, for crazy tech stuff. And then one office suite and one another edit offline. I'd just like to take a break to thank our sponsors. We'll be back in under a minute. MSI is a proud partner of Masters of Motion, supporting our podcast, events and workshops. They are committed to supporting the creative industry. MSI make outstanding, high-quality computers. Recently, MSI sent me one of their laptop workstations to run through its paces. I'm happy to report that it worked very well on high-end tasks and for my general computing has been excellent. Their laptop workstations are fitted with NVIDIA graphics cards, which also perform well. I personally recommend checking out MSI laptops at www.msi.com 
forward slash workstations. All right, Travis, let's get back into it. Could you describe your pipeline? What cameras, software, hardware, renderers do you use? Cameras, generally Alexa, possibly RED. At the moment, the minis do about 4K and we're doing Premiere now, um, which will be edited as an offline approved. And then we take that EDL and it goes to Nuke Studio. Yep. Nuke Studio allows us to output Nuke files for all comping and every single shot, effects or not, gets one. Um, If it doesn't get used, it just gets sent back through the pipeline and back out to the edit suite. Yeah. Nuke Studio will allow us to view the latest updates. So every shot that's got visual effects will be sent to Nuke and then sent straight back to Nuke Studio. Yep. To produce the content after the Nuke, if if there's more content to put into the Nuke project, it'll be either Max or Houdini. Uh, Slowly we're heading towards Houdini. I'm the only one dragging my heels on that one. Houdini is hard to learn, but looks amazing. Everyone else is on it. But you've had many years of Max. Many years of Max, and it's just like some jobs that are two weeks turnaround can get in, bash it out, and get an amazing result. We use Redshift now for rendering, so there's sort of real-time-ish rendering, at least, you know, fast results. So you can get some – Max is amazing. We've been using it for ever and a day. Um, It's just that if you're going to do some bigger projects, um, we found Houdini, which crosses over linking – assets and textures and and particle systems and blah, 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 blah. It's, it's amazing i've got to pull my finger out and, <laughs> and spend spend a month bashing my head against the table <laughs> yeah in multiple podcasts i've talked about how challenging houdini is and how it's a technical brain but when the stuff that they can do is it's amazing but but you look at nuke uh for compositing and is the exact same thing we were in after effects for years and then to go to a nodal based yep. thing but I look at that now and I go, oh, my God, I couldn't go back. I sort of see it as a nodal version of Max. Yeah, well, Nuke Nuke is pretty cool software. Uh, it's amazing that more st- smaller studios aren't using it. Uh, but yeah. I think it's just the price point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that, that's it is hard, but it is really powerful, even too powerful to, to a point. Like I would say we – not that it's a bad thing, but I would say we use 40% of it at best. There's a lot in there. I would say 20%. Yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) But you're using Redshift and uh, you're also doing colour grading. So if we're carrying on the pipeline story, it'll go back into Nuke Studio and then output again for Resolve and then brought back into Premiere for the final online out, Yep. uh, which I think we're changing soon uh, because Nuke Studio is becoming pretty good to actual online. So you're a fan of Nuke Studio? I don't run it. Uh, Rob Wright, our lead, does. The good thing is that it's a hub to see all the shots together, just sort of plays and everything updates, and you're kind of just getting an overall vibe of where we are in the project. It's kind of a bit blinding if you don't have that kind of nice center point of viewing. And what do you use to manage your shots? Sometimes just a, a Google Doc. Okay. It's like, here's the things that need to be done on this, and you just tick them off. Uh, no shotgun or... No, no, we, we've, we've gone through all those and just realised it's overkill. It doesn't need bells and whistles. How does a traditional production pipeline compare to a visual effects pipeline? 
We're a traditional production company. We have internal visual effects. It doesn't, it's not what makes us. And I'd say easily half of our ads go through without touching the visual effects. So it's straight, it's normal pipeline, offline, online, grade and out sort of thing. As a partner, what are your main challenges when running a business at the moment? Well, may as well talk about coronavirus, or at least a, as an indication of, of what can happen. And I'm sure every single business owner is a bit in lockdown at the moment, trying to work out, you know, how the next few months are going to go. Yeah. You know, money goes out the door, rain, hell or shine. So you have to have enough fat to weather those times. We are always, always, after having slower times, always really worried about making sure that fat is really, really large to, yeah. to make sure everyone's going to do well. And, and, and there's no chance of it conking out and how important do you think contracts are and how detailed are your contracts and do you use a legal service obviously important the guys who we sort of hire are professional enough to really meticulously go through the contracts which is great you know for freelancers we get them in get them out it's not sort of contract heavy but that's just because you're there for a few days at a time if not a few weeks but more for like with your agency work, you have a contract with the agency and, uh, and where do you start doing contracts at like 5,000, 10,000, 50,000? Uh, we have a contract that's a PO goes out with a, a document with a list of requirements from them, requirements from us. This is what you're getting your money for. PO comes through and that's the, the contract. Yeah. A PO. So the purchase order is like, hey, yes, stamp, go for it. Here's your money. Okay. We often won't start until the purchase order actually comes through the door to an extent. So the agency's giving you the PO, you're not giving them the legal documents, they're giving you the legal documents. <clears throat> well, within the uh, agreement of the quote, so the quote actually goes out with, hey, this is what you're going to get, this is what you're paying for, here are some things, you get X amount of range of changes, there's a, a timeline, all, all the things that you need to do. So the contract's actually heavily in the quote. And 50% up front or more? It's actually just changed. 30% up front... 30% before shoot works out at 66% of the day we're shooting. 33% at the end. Okay. It used to be 50%, but that ends up costing the production company a lot. So we're trying to get a bit more fat at the front uh, so that everyone can be paid, all the crew. So why did you set up the Sydney office and how did that go? It's gone great. It's always hard to have a an office up in Sydney if you're not local. We've been trying to bash into the, into the market for years. Yep. It's always a bit of you have to be local. So after 2018, we got a bumper year of awards. LA International Production Company of the Year, Gold Lions, Black Pencils, and it was, you know, we couldn't get more awards that year. So it was the year where we said, let's do this. Let's hit Sydney. And do you think awards are important for directors and production companies? Yeah. <laughs> straight up yeah um it's one of our best marketing tools like we see it as marketing we actually have the sort of budget as as marketing to enter awards because when it comes to it every agency wants to win awards and if you're winning awards there's a better chance of you getting the job and is it the social networking that goes in hand in hand with the awards night or is it just actually huh. the winning bit of both adrian bossich is actually judge on quite a few awards. So he goes around and meets a lot of other agencies. So there's a great sort of network there that he's made heaps of connections. Um, so that's been a great asset. I'm going to change directions a little bit. It would be great if you could explain to people what a treatment is and what's the process of creating one. Uh, well, a treatment is kind of a vision of the director 
of what they would do with the brief or the, the script. Okay. Three directors get given the brief and the script and a bit of a rundown of, of what the agency is thinking. And they then produce a document that has visual reference, story, techniques, ideas, and take the script and sort of flesh it out a bit more. Explain the visual and written content. It's a document, so you'll get the brief. You send back a, a PDF, sometimes moving image, sometimes not. Yep. Up to 20 pages sometimes um, that you sort of produce in about three days generally. And a, a quote will go back as well. Yep. Your producer needs to know what you want to do to give the quote. So you say, I want a million people standing in a stadium. they got to know that so that they're not quoting wrong. So is it more about the visuals winning you over or is it more about the written description of what you're going to do? <laughs> Probably the visuals. Nice images go a long way. Obviously, the, it has to be a good idea. Yeah. A creative wants you to take their idea and fatten it out and, and bring something to it. Otherwise, they'll just hire a cinematographer. You know, you have to be bringing something to it. That is all important. And the style, uh, is it due to like style boards and then uh, written descriptions of those style boards? The actual choice of images often aren't directly linked with what's going to be on the shot, but it's kind of a mood to give the right feel so they know where you're heading. It's, it's hard for a creative. They've got, to, they've got to trust that what you hand over the piece of paper is going to be as much information for them to know that they're going to get back what they want. And do they get a quick time? Uh, yeah, you can do a bit of an edit, a but it depends on, on the, the size of the job if it's warranted or if, it, if it's going to help. And the visual effects imagery, do you try and do like pre-renders and concepts and then put them in or do you like go online and like find examples that you like? Quite often examples. For example, we just spent maybe two days, three days doing clouds, like doing different techniques of Houdini sort of particle system clouds, doing some weird stuff, yep. ominous clouds and... 10 different versions, one of them moving. It was kind of like we created the ad even before we got the job. Yep. The thing is the treatment comes down to if it's a great idea and you want it and you want it on your reel, you'll work hard for it. Ominous clouds, quite appropriate. <laughs> uh, Corona virus. Once you get the brief, what's your process of creating ideas? To be honest, I don't think I've broken it down but let, let's have a think you um, go and have a shower or uh, go for a run <laughs> well you, you go through the script and, and you read their brief they'll have a bit of a write-up as well as the script they often have image reference themselves or, or hey i've watched this this ad it's kind of like this and it's kind of like that and you just read it over a few times and and see what floats see what you can bring to it yep the hard thing they've got is they've sold that through to their client they've already spent sometimes a year trying to get an idea over the line, you can't often go, cool, I'm going to reinvent the wheel just because they've spent so much time getting it to that point. You're at the end of the line. So what you have to bring still has to fit within the ethos of what's happening. It could be cinematic style. It could be editing style. It's an idea of camera move. It could be the type of characters that you want to use or the look or something that's not going to break the bank of, of the idea. Um, so it's a, it's a fine line. If, you, if you've got some crazy ideas, it's great. Yep. But you've got to balance that line of... Because they're just going to go, oh, my God, I can't take this idea to the client. It's too dangerous kind of thing. So it's a fine line. What do you think are the most important methods when you're trying to sell your idea? 
I actually like presenting in person. I find it very hard to get the emphasis across within a, a written document. Maybe because I'm not the best of writers, but I think enthusiasm and like comes across with a meeting. Yep. And pretty much every time I've, I've been able to get in there, I've, I've sort of won the job just because they want enthusiasm for this project. They want to make sure that there's effort and energy thrown at this idea. So if you've got a great idea for it, having that energy level is is what comes across. So if you've got a meeting, great. If you don't, well-written, casual but informative, not nothing too formal. I like honesty, putting it on the line kind of vibe. Yep. I personally hate the the suck up. I love you. You're great. This is the best idea. You're going to, you know, it, there's, there's always that part of the treatment. Uh, I try to keep that to a minimum. Yeah. I like to let them know if I like the idea, but uh, the, the kiss up is a painful experience. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're the, uh, I, I'm not known for that. I'm actually known for the opposite. So it's not my area. <laughs> you can be a, a visual director or a writing director, hopefully both. You get some guys who write some amazing things that I, I, I'm in awe of, just their writing style. So to follow up, it's get in there early and talk to the people, present, show your enthusiasm, add a little bit of sucking up, <laughs> write really well and present a clear idea that's not too out there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do what you want. Like, you know, geez, I don't know. <laughs> I don't win every job. <laughs> um, so, that, so, you know, just be aware that they can't reinvent the wheel. So you're adding to it, but you're probably not reinventing. Great. When you get the brief, what are the main things that you have to learn? And is talking to them in person going to help you a lot? Yeah, they will give you the written brief, but they will actually give you a call as well and and talk you through it, Um, which can be quite hard because they'll have done this three times. Yep. Inspiring them in that phone call where you haven't actually put your ideas across yet, but you're sort of trying to gauge what what they want. And just sort of being able to pick up on little hints that they may not put out, but if you can hold on to those little bits of gold that sort of are hinted at, maybe not written down, and then sort of expand on those things. Okay. So when they're explaining the brief, take notes, take as many notes as you can, because each little bit of information is going to be gold. And and you have a chance to elaborate on the parts that they may not have really focused on in their original briefing. So another director may not have heard that. I often did those sales calls and I never took them very seriously. I always wanted to get in, but when they were beefing me on what they wanted me to pitch on, because mm. I hated pitching so much, I wasn't, I don't think I was doing a good job like what you were saying. Half of the time, if you are blowing them away, even before they've got a treatment, they've already swayed into going, oh, well, I'm going to keep an eye on this guy's treatment because he's blown me away in this meeting and you're already on the, the front foot blow away that meeting, just absolutely nail it. And you just know we're on 50-50 as opposed to one third. What are the main challenges that you face when you're doing a treatment? It, it's all a challenge. You want every part to be great. You, you'll have a um, assistant director helping out with image search and they will do a layup generally. And you, so you're writing the words and then they send you a pool of images and you're like, okay, you refine that process and, and here's a few I like, this is the right look, this is the right character and, and they'll go back and find some more and start building up. So even before you've finished the document or finished writing, there's a bit of a process already happening. You've already got a bit of a document because the actual feel of the document, the look and the mood and the, the essence, 
that's what they'll look through first and they'll go, oh, they get the feel. They're, almost the yeah. words are secondary from that first reference of like flicking through going, yeah, okay, this guy gets the mood we're going for. This has got the look. This is the style. So image search is hugely important. Okay. Words, images, I don't even know if there's three. <laughs> That's all that it is. <laughs> How does the visual effects treatment compare to just a, a straightforward directing treatment? There's no difference because the ad may have visual effects in it, but I don't see it being a visual effects treatment. We have a client going, here's the script, what would you do? Yeah. You may sort of say, hey, here's some techniques that I want to use, which is going to take you outside of the your general comfort zone and, and we'll talk you through that. Uh, but the actual treatment's all about the idea, it's all about the image and getting their message across. What do you think the main reason why a treatment doesn't get up? Image is the first one. There's a good chance to blow a, a job that way. One of the ones that's kind of interesting is who they know. If they've worked with you before, uh, they have to get three. Yeah. You may already be on the back foot just because they've used that other person before. Your portfolio might not have what they're looking for exactly. There's, there's a million reasons to, to lose a job, and I'm sure I've done most of them. Um, <laughs> so it's... So you're trying to say that they, uh, they're actually going to go with someone else, doesn't matter what they do. Sometimes, but one of the ones that I love is is when you're never worked with them before and you've won a job and you know that it's taken over from a guy's done the last three ads because that's how good your treatment is. I don't know. There, there's so many reasons to to lose a job and so many reasons to win a job that there's no like rhyme or reason. You sort of just have to work with the numbers. You will lose two thirds of your jobs. Yeah. You know, just statistically, and the longer you work in the field, the the more it's going to happen. Well, that's interesting. The actual pitching process makes it competitive. What do you think of the pitching process and how do you think it affects the industry? I don't know. It's uh, it's so a part of the industry. I, I feel like it's standard. Um, the pitch comes down to the quote as well. So the idea, the director, and then the producer coming up with the with the actual costs. And that cost has to is just as important. Like you can come in $100,000 too much and you, you're not even in the ballpark. Yeah. Trying to find out, trying to maneuver to work out what they actually have is really important because if, if you can find out that they only have 150000 say, and you're looking at an idea for $300,000, you're just wasting your time. You have to actually have an idea that matches the budget. How often do you get it out of them, what they want? They come to you with the budget. I think that's uh, my EP, Martin's mm. question, just because I'm sure he does his best to find yeah. that out because it's, it's all important. I always find that frustrating. Uh, yeah, and not is. only that, I've been on the reverse end where I've been dishing out projects to people yeah. and my boss has said, don't tell them the amount, mm. let them come back to us. Well, And it, then they come back with this fucking astronomical amount and yeah. I've got to say no. And I'm a big fan personally of saying, this is what we've got, yep. what can you do? It makes your treatment fit the budget, which is always good. Don't want a 100 extras, you work out a story that doesn't have the 100 extras. And that's fine. Like every budget can get a good story. And every budget can, as a business owner, can make you money if you work within that realms. But knowing the budget's all important if you can get it. Yeah, I'm not really sure why agencies do that or why people do it. I I know the reasons, but mm. I don't think they're well-grounded. Yeah. Well, sometimes you come in too under and that they worry, oh, geez, we're not going to get the bang for buck that we want. Yeah. It's it's not their money. They're spending their clients' money. So I feel like they should just go, here's what you got. You're damn right. How much markup do you think they put on your work? As much as they physically can. <laughs> and, you know, 
The thing is, agencies do it tough just as much as production companies. And, and there's how many stories of agencies going under? And they go under just like every other company. So they've they got to make their money. Yeah. I'm not offended. If we're making our money and we're happy, yeah, good on them. Describe the sort of television commercials you direct. My niche is uh, visual effects, but you know, a good portion of mine have no visual effects. It's all in camera, just shooting. Because of my skill base in visual effects, it allows me to do more of the technical jobs. So describe one of your key ads visual effects shots. The bowel cancer had Bill Bailey, English comedian, doing a voiceover. Mm. And it was all about bowel cancer and the awareness that it's the second most deadly cancer in the world. Mm. As a charity, there's not much budget there, but we're able to create a full glass sculpture that had internal lights as a Bill Bailey talking from the bow. That just involved me doing stills and then a full 3D model and then a lot of rendering and camera work. And all that project you did yourself? Yeah, all myself, which is unique. When it's for a, at a good cause, I'll definitely go above and beyond. But generally, on most ads, I'll have a cinematographer, an editor, a grader, a visual effects team. Well, I love the fact you can do it yourself. Although there was no shooting in that ad, you it's a beautiful, clear skeleton with uh, the different bowels inside it and it looks pretty cool yeah let's talk more about the directing so what are the sort of things that you develop prior to shoot day to get yourself ready so the shoot goes well when we have a, a shot list and a storyboard actual assets that are 3d wise if you're sort of thinking in that field we can actually start building assets from day one so by the time we've shot we actually already may have had a good chunk of the pipeline already done. Me knowing what I want, knowing what I'm going to shoot, uh, allows us to sort of get everything ready so that the end of the process after the edit is a little bit shortened and you want to make sure that everything's as ready as you can be. Yeah, well, that's pretty cool. So you got your storyboards and style guides and all those sort of things ready to go on shoot day? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You, you're not being creative on a shoot day. It's not the time to play around. You've got... X amount of hours and you've got to maximise every second. If you go over, your producer's on your back like you wouldn't believe and then for good reasons. Yeah. Overtime costs triple or whatever the, the numbers is. So you have planned everything to the end of the degree. Yeah. All your creative processes happened before. You've, you've already organised all that. Could you tell us about one of your tech jobs and what's a shoot like on a tech job? City of Melbourne was a, a tech job. And that was very different to, to the standard shoot day. Yeah. There was a lot of prep, a lot of model building, a lot of testing technology-wise. We did a lot of crazy things in that um, that we weren't 100% certain was possible. We'd have enough tech guys to sort of go, yeah, I think that's, that's going to work. But then putting it into a, yeah. a location for a month with, you know, drunk people at two o'clock in the morning, it has to survive that. You know, so you, you put an event out there, it has to actually be strong enough and, and solid enough to, to be, you know, not just work for 30 seconds on an ad. Uh, so what's the difference between a live action shoot and one where you're doing CG? As a director, obviously the shoot day is very different. Uh, say the Bank of Melbourne job, that was all stills. Yeah. You'd already done the storyboards. You'd already been pretty solid in what you needed and, and the go out and shoot knowing what you needed. Yeah. The shoot day was multiple shoot days of, of stills work from helicopters and from things. So it was getting aerial shots in different ways. Mm. But then a standard shoot all happens on one day. 
you really have to make sure that you've you're prepped to the point where you don't go back for another day. But I say Bank of Melbourne, if we wanted to go out and get another shot, it's going to cost a photographer and me and we go out and shoot. And that's not going to be $100,000 a day, which is great. Well, what if there's multiple locations? Do you still do it on one day? Depends. You, you really try to keep it close. To, to break set and, and get everyone in a van trucked over to another location is something you don't want. You, you'll actually see a lot of ads that have... It feels like a different location, but it will be the back of the house or it'll be a different room or it'll be whatever you can do to keep that in one place because a move is costly. Tell us about your personal style of directing. I scream a lot. <laughs> I yell a bit, no. <laughs> okay. um, uh, I would say I'm casual. Maybe other people don't reckon I am. I don't know. On set, it's a lot of energy. Yep. Time is of the essence and I... And I bouncing off the walls i get get home after a day shoot and you're out of it because it's, it's full on you have to you're three shots ahead you're thinking about what's happening you know what has to be set up for the next one you can't wait to the end of a shot and go oh what's next what should i look at you're already aware a lot of directors talk about being uncomfortable and that's when they do their best work how do you feel on a day try not to be uncomfortable hopefully you've planned enough if you don't know if it's going to work that's a risk. That's a huge risk for, for a lot of people and a lot of money. And, and, you know, it's a risk for your business and risk for the agencies. So you, you've hopefully storyboarded it to the nth. And the, the good thing is there's room to play. You get what you need. You know what you're going to shoot to make sure you get a proper ad. Yep. Then you've got the leeway to go, hey, let's try this. Let's try that. And if there's time, go nuts. But make sure you've, you've got the time to get what's minimum needed. And when you're talking with the agency, what do you get approved and how much information do you supply to them before shoot day so you know you're in the, in the right place? To tell them too much, a really high quality uh, storyboard can actually be a bit of a hindrance sometimes. Try and keep it a little bit loose. You need to know that on the day, the background may not be the thing you want or you want to turn it around a little bit you got to have a bit of leeway to make sure that you know that you're getting the best shot in the location, not be forced by the hand of a storyboard artist that happened weeks ago before things have developed. So I just want to talk about technical stuff that's on the shoot. What are the methods that you use to make sure that your post-production goes smoothly when you're on shoot day? If it's a really technical shot that needs multiple plates and a bit of this and a bit of that, you can actually do a previs and then do a comp on a previs so that you know it's going to work. It doesn't happen too often, but that, that's a bit of an extreme. Okay. But you need to grab everything. You need to get a 360 HDRI. You need to get references, measurements, lens data. Lens data is so important. Yeah. Barrel information about distortion. Like I know what is needed, but I get a visual supervisor to just go, you know what we need. I don't want to think about it. You, you're going to get it all. So on a shoot day, you've got a visual effects supervisor. You're not doing the soup as well. It depends on the budget and, and all the rest. But yeah, you kind of just don't want to be thinking about that. You've already thought about what you need on the day and you've got to make sure that you've got the tracking data and you've got all the things that you want to have. But yeah. as a director, you want to be thinking about the acting, the story, the camera, you know, have you got the shots? Is it going to edit well? You've got to be thinking higher level. Um, if you get too bogged down in the, in the technicals, uh, it's, you've only got set amount of brain power before you're going to, you know, frazzle. That is very interesting because I always did both. 
And I, and I always felt very stressed. I know I always <laughs> felt uncomfortable. That's why I didn't do shoots because yeah, yeah, it no, didn't make me feel great. Well, things like you know getting lighting references and all that sort of stuff. You just don't need to do it. Like if, if it's going to be a, a, an ad that, that can warrant a budget for a guy, get a guy. Don't don't be doing it. <laughs> yeah, well, I never had those budgets. Uh, yeah. Is there any other technical thing that you want to add to that? Because that's the thing that will interest people. On, on a few of the shoots, I've actually sort of set up a board with every single shot that we're about to do and then a 3D render of where the camera is, where the track's going to be, where the green screen needs to be, because all these people need to move these objects around. So if they can sort of see, oh, okay, well, we can rearrange the actual order of the shots because the green screen's going to take two hours to set up or something stupid. Yep. And so why don't we do this order? And, and, and just everyone's sort of seeing what needs to happen when it becomes technical. Um, but the thing is, like, on most shoots, you want to keep the effects to a minimum. Like, f- for the bells and whistles, you don't, you don't want it to slow you down. If you can put a portable green screen up just behind that one person, do it. If you can get the HDRI and it's just straight after the shoot uh, or after each setup, then it's nice and easy. Do it quick. Don't let it slow everything down. What are the main methods you employ to stop setbacks or failures or budget blowouts on shoot day? A good first AD will keep you on your toes. They run the show pretty much. Yep. And they will be kind in the set of the sense like, oh, no, we've, we've gone a bit behind. And then their tone changes. Oh, okay, you got to speed this one up. And then it's like, fuck, <laughs> get in there, do it. Yeah. You've got five minutes for this shot. You can only do two takes. Get in and get it out. We're moving. Cool. You will spend as much physical time to make the best shot possible, and that's what you're meant to be doing. Then there should be someone pulling your leash to say, sort your shit out. This, is, this needs to be faster. What's the approval process like or their feedback on shoot day? On shoot day, the client will have a, a split where they're watching the feed so the split is like just uh, other screens in the other room. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah. So you've got a monitor on, on the camera. You've got a monitor that is for the director and he'll be that'll be a little bit back from the camera and then they'll have the same one. Also, like, do they have the client there? So the client and the agency will be there. And normally the producers are good liaison with them. They'll be sitting with them talking about explaining stuff yep. and they will be a good feedback for you, for them when they go, oh, they've mentioned that, you know, they don't like this, but they haven't said anything. So you can sort of improve things, yeah. you know, ears on the ground. So do you show the agency and the client everything or? You generally turn the split off. Well, we do anyhow. I do turn the split off for a little bit. And while you're cleaning up and sorting stuff out, because it's generally a mess and, and it doesn't look good. Once you're sort of happy, you turn the split back on and let them sort of see early stages of stuff. Yeah. And then you'll have a chance to run through it. They'll have an opinion. You go in and have a good chat with them. Hey, what are you thinking? This seems good. They'll have, can you try this? Can you try that? You run back and you do a few more takes. Um, And then you sort of have to wait for the thumbs up, for the all clear sort of thing before you move on. Okay. When you're setting up a shot, you just don't want them to see too much, you know, mess that happens. (laughs) The stress. And and, and if you you feel like your creative vision is not coming through and they're like you're not happy with what they're saying, how do you manage that? Bit of sucking it up <laughs> doesn't go astray. Um, you know, they're paying the bills and you're doing everything you can to make it as good as possible. Generally, there's enough takes in there to get your version in there. Okay. 
especially the first few, you push for what you're wanting. And if they're going to manoeuvre it, you've got it in the can, so don't stress too much about it and have that fight and edit, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, it reminds me of like we did this thing for the Caulfield Cup. I wasn't doing it because it was my studio job. Yep. But I had hired a producer who was going to produce direct the stuff. Yep. It was a comedy and they had like all these different comedy versions. But then they had a jockey riding a blow-up horse. Okay. And it was funny. <laughs> yep. And the agency, they wanted it. Yep. And I wanted it. And the client did not want it. And it was like, they didn't want to shoot it. We shot it. It was yep. funny. Did it make it to the edit? It made it to the online stuff. Yep. But it didn't make it into the TVC. Yeah, shoot it. You know, get it done. Oh, well, I, luckily <laughs> for me on that day, let's just do it. Do you know yeah. what I'm saying? We're here. Let's just do it. Yeah. And he did it. And when I watched it, it was great. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's, it's a month's worth of work to get it to the day of shooting. If it's going to take two minutes to do the shot, you know, do the shot. How do you achieve your creative goals and satisfy the agency without blowing the budget? I'm in a bit of a weird position because I'm a business owner as well as a director. It should be the director. They should not try and break the bank, but they are trying to make something as good as physically possible. And there should be enough Mm. other people in the room who are making sure it doesn't go too crazy. But the final output of what's on the screen is all important. Yeah. But also, if you blow the budget too many times, you haven't got a business to open the doors to. So it's definitely a fine line. If you've got a, a creative head and a business head, there's that mash in the middle that's where that sweet spot is that a yeah. business is going to keep going for the long term and you're going to produce content that's as physically good as possible. So I'm just going to switch gears now and ask you, have you got any passion projects going? <laughs> and do you find that as a good thing to make you more relaxed and sort of have better work-life balance? I've just, in the last year or so, started getting back into large format film photography. And I've just started geeking out heavily on uh, homemade cameras. So I'm producing 3D printing a 6x17 large format camera at the moment, uh, which is stupidly over the top and unneeded, but how good is that? (laughs) Tell us a bit more about the camera you're making. This one is a Graflock back for a Crown Graphic press camera from the 50s. So the front end is the lens and the movements and the focus, and then this film back gets bolted on the back. And do you weld it or...? Graflock back is like a locking mechanism for a standard universal locking... So you have to have yeah. build it to fit that mechanism, but then after that, it's it's good to go. What I'm saying is, is that how do you make the actual mechanism? How do you... Because I do 3D, I can build stuff in 3D and then you just export it as a certain file format and you 3D print it. Cool. Yeah. No, it's just this... It's... And have you got a 3D printer at home? Well, we have work because we do a lot of tech. We do a lot of weird technology stuff. We've got a 3D printer. So it's kind of like I'll design something, I'll hit go, it'll take two days yeah. to print out and... It'll sort of sit in the background so I don't have to think about it. Cool. And so is this like a hobby? It's literally on the side. It's yeah. it's uh, me dragging myself back to film photography of my early days, but also geeking out on 3D design because that's also what I do. But then tinkering as well is always a little fun thing. And you have small kids. Do you find <laughs> that the business and everything is stressful or you're a well-balanced person? I'm, I'm pretty well-balanced as a stress level. Uh, generally having kids definitely makes you get home a little earlier. 
especially at this stage, they're very young, so you kind of want to be there. Mm. Not much of a stressor. It's all working out. Can't complain. Have you ever done any like business mentoring or psychology or anything like that to help you as a person? No, I haven't done anything like that. I feel like it's pretty binary, these things. Like if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And I'm not offended if it doesn't. It's just there's a billion reasons why it won't. And you just got to keep going. So what's next? What's in the future? I feel like having a good think about what the new markets are. What are areas that we want to be actually in? I would say I don't know what's next, um, but we've been running it for 15 years and each year it changes, so we'll be doing something next year. (laughs) Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. Thanks very much for coming in and spending time with me today. I've really enjoyed it. Not a problem. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks very much for listening. If you like this podcast, it would be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. Or you can come find Matthew Packwood on Facebook where I post everything you need to know about Masters of Motion. You can find out more about Travis Hogg at www.airbag.co Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week. This is all motion. Bye-bye. Hopefully when you're listening to this, this will be the past and everything will be fine and we're still not, you know, it's not Mad Max version 4. Good luck with uh, Corona, everyone. It's all right. Get out of the bubble. (laughs) (laughs) Okay.